Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. The dust is uh, pretty much beginning to settle over the election. The, uh, they have to form a government, but I want to say a few words about uh, what happened at the election. It was a fifth election uh, in 44 months. And Israel's political uh, problems temporarily ended when the nation went to the polls in large numbers, 70%, and finally rendered a clear decision. Benjamin Netanyahu is back, and this time as head of the most right-wing and religious coalition this country has ever seen. There are good things and bad things about it. I don't want to go into the details. Some people will take issue with the statement about a clear decision. They'll say that the Netanyahu bloc, which includes the Likud, which is his party, and two very, very religious parties. One is called Shas, which is primarily uh, has to do with uh, Sephardi Jews, United Torah Judaism, which is primarily Ashkenaz Jews, and the Religious Zionist Party, which uh, covers pretty much the spectrum of religious Jews, primarily those who are Zionist. Now, this group, uh, the the, uh, Likud, and the three religious parties received really only a few thousand more votes than the number received by the anti-Netanyahu bloc, which is made up of all the parties in the outgoing government, plus the Arab, Balad, and Hadash Tal parties. A few thousand votes do not make a clear mandate. This could be argued. It's far short of a resounding victory, and the, it is less than the clear mandate that the Netanyahu bloc is claiming. Now, while this might be true in terms of the popular vote, in terms of a parliamentary majority, there's no doubt that Netanyahu has a clear mandate as any government has had in years. It appears that with these the three the three parties be, together with the Likud, they have a 65 seat coalition, which in a parliamentary uh, system set up of 120 seats, they have what it can be considered a majority. You could even call it a clear majority of five votes. In the United States, for example, the candidate can become president by actually winning the electoral vote, the number of electors in each state, even though he didn't win the popular vote. And here in Israel, because of the electoral threshold, one block may win the popular vote, yet not be able to form a coalition. In the first election of this current 
crazy cycle back in April 2019, the pro-Netanyahu bloc won 230,000 uh, votes than the anti-Netanyahu bloc. Yet Netanyahu couldn't form a coalition because then a party called the New Right, run by Nathalie Bennett, and a party called Zahut Party, run by a gentleman named Moshe Beglin, failed to pass the electoral threshold. What happened to the right in April 2019 is really what happened to the left this time. It imploded. Two of the parties, left-wing parties, Meretz, a Jewish party, and Balad, an Arab party, failed to pass the threshold. And the threshold is if you don't get 3.25% of the vote, your votes are wasted and you get nothing. Now, it's true that the Netanyahu bloc may have received only a few thousand votes more than the anti-Netanyahu bloc, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes ballooned the pro-network block this time. And the last election was March 2021. The eventual, the eight parties that eventually formed a coalition, together with the Arab joint list, received 2,488, 368 votes. So let's say 2.4 million votes. Now, the, uh, the other parties, together, the Likud, Shash, the United Torah Jews, and the Religious Zionist Party, got 1.8 million votes. Now, that's a difference of more than 630,000 votes. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the eight parties that were against... Um, Netanyahu had a tremendous, tremendous number of votes, more than the Netanyahu bloc. Now this time, the pro-Netanyahu bloc outpolled the anti-Netanyahu bloc, but only a few thousand votes. Going from being 630,000 votes in the red to a few thousand in the black is not an inconsiderable shift. So the question is, why did this happen? What changed so dramatically in the last year to cause such a move from the left to the right? Now, there are, of course, all kinds of political explanations that the uh, anti-Netanyahu bloc, which is headed by the guy's prime minister, Yair Lapid, did not run a good campaign this time. There are several articles in the paper, a lot of commentators on the radio saying that uh, Lapid didn't run a good uh, a good campaign. By the way, his party, which is far behind the Likud, so has a lot of vote and a lot of seats. The uh, Netanyahu, according to the experts, was well aware that the only way for him to grow his block was to get out more Haredi and and Likud voters was was out barnstorming. He was holding meetings all over the country. I don't know where he's a man in his 70s already. I don't know where he got the strength. The uh, uh, so it, the the, the anti Netanyahu group 
simply did not really run a good campaign. The uh, was it the uh, it, it could be argued that Lapid, who only came into contact into politics about ten years ago, was his goal was to build his legitimacy in the eyes of the public as his prime minister, and uh, he tried to get as much as he could. So he could rival he could inside something that would make him the undisputed leader of the central left bloc. If that was his strategy, it failed miserably because to get to the future, you have to survive the president. But so Lapid did not organize his bloc the way Netanyahu organized his bloc. And his failure to ensure that all the parties in his block make it, make it into the Knesset cost him dearly. Now there's going to be there's going to be renewed challenges to Lapid's leadership. In other words, Lapid's failure to get enough votes to be the guy asked to form the next government is going to make his own position as the head of his party and the head of the left insecure. And uh, he wanted to be the head, of, the leader of the center-left for years to come, but apparently he's not—he's not going to do it. It's interesting, by the way, that a lot of people had uh, buried Netanyahu politically, and they talked. About, I saw it in the newspapers all the time the end of Netanyahu uh, career uh, era. They overestimated how much the public cares about the corruption charges against him. In other words, they brought up all these corruption charges against Netanyahu, but the public didn't seem to care. Uh, they, the the anti-Netanyahu pe people simply misread the public. The If you think about it for a minute, you understand the big thing in Israel is security issues. Security issues to the Israeli public are what economic issues are to the American public. These are the issues that determine elections. Uh, even now, I, I, my program is going to be on the air after the American elections, and I'm, I'm pre-recording uh, the program. But I watch American TV, in particular Fox News, and it seems that what the Americans are worried about is economic. And Israel, what people worry about mostly is security. And uh, security here in Israel is meant not in the sense of national security, uh, like, like the question of uh, Iran or Hezbollah, but people really worry about here. They don't, I think, people don't think about the big things. They worry about personal security which is something people feel every day. Now, just as a resurgence of terrorism preceded the um, election won by uh, Yitzhak Shamir uh, against Yitzhak Rabin back in 1988, it was when there was a, a spate of bus bombings. And when they ever had that, it, people turned to the ones they think will give them personal security. Well, the, back in the 2001, the Ariel Sharon uh, uh, 
the election uh, came just a couple of months after the start of it, what's called the second intifada. So when you have a, uh, a wave of terrorism, the people are going to say, this government is not doing enough for my personal security. And they vote for the other party. That's one uh, a major reason for the kinds of vote you get in Israel. Now, it's interesting, the Religious Zionist Party, which includes a guy named Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's very, very controversial. Uh, the head of the party is Bensalo Smutrich. These names don't mean much, I think, to people outside the country. But Ben-Gvir had his own party. Bensalo Smutrich had his own party, the National Religious Party. And they ran together on the same, same ticket. They... Um, they doubled the votes in a single year. In March 2021, they got 225,000 votes. This year, they got 460,000 votes, which is a pickup of an additional eight seats that are right-wing seats, and they'll go into Netanyahu's government. Terrorism and the lack of personal security goes a long way toward explaining why so many more people voted for the far-right party than they did 20 months ago. Now, on top of this, you had the violent Arab rioting in the mixed Arab-Israeli cities back in May of last year, and it was kind of traumatic, and it provided ground for, for Ben-Gvir's ben call for more personal safety. Other parties simply didn't address the fear generated by the rioting to the degree that Ben Beer did. And he promised law and order, and that resonated with the public. Now, Ben Beer's party also did extremely well in the settlements, people living in Judea and Samaria. A half a million Israelis live in communities beyond, beyond what's called the Green Line, and they drive on roads with the fear of a rock crashing into one's car or a bullet piercing one's windshield is real. The religious Zionist party spoke to this issue, but few others did. And then there's another item, which doesn't get the big headlines outside the country, but they were getting huge headlines here for a couple of years, and that is the, uh, the fact that Netanyahu is on trial for bribery and things like that. Now, a major part of the anti-Netanyahu campaign centered on the question, how a man on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust can govern the country, and what would he do to the judiciary if he returned to power? What was not taken into consideration sufficiently, however, is that from March 2021, uh, that election, to the one last week, the case against Netanyahu has not gone particularly well. Everybody thought Netanyahu would get convicted very rapidly. That's how it appears to many people in the early days when the media were being fed leaks by officials investigating Netanyahu. 
and nobody really cares anymore. The uh, the, it, the 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 case was not handled well by the anti uh, by the lawyers by the state prosecutor. Uh, the way the uh, evidence was collected, the facts presented, raised doubts about the strength of the of the prosecution's cases against Netanyahu. So, uh, the, uh, in a sense, Netanyahu was under a cloud of suspicion. And now, people seem to think that there's cloud of suspicion should be against the lawyers against Netanyahu because they're unable to make their case. So, somebody has called it Bibi Court Case Fatigue. That's something that's understandable, given that the investigations against Netanyahu began six years ago. But the uh, so in that time, the the campaign of Bibi's a crook. It just seemed to people lost interest. <coughs> and finally, and I think this is quite important. People underestimated Netanyahu who thought he would not survive in the opposition. They thought he would try to cop a plea to stay out of jail. They believed that, that without being prime minister, without power, without the ability to set the agenda, he would just fade away. The problem is for these people, Netanyahu is not the fading away type. He led an opposition that made his life made life unbearable for the government under Bennett. He fought tooth and nail against the criminal charges against him, and then when the government fell and election was called, he campaigned as though this was his first term. And keep in mind, he's 73 years old. Campaign stop after campaign stop. Social media clip after social media clip. He was indefatigable. He was a candidate who couldn't be stopped. When he delivered a victory speech last Wednesday morning, about 2 o'clock, he looked as if he had felt vindicated, becoming emotional, something he rarely does in public when speaking of the sacrifice made by his family. The public brought him back for the third time. Regardless of how his trial ends, history will record that unlike David Ben-Gurion, or unlike Yitzhak Rabin, or Paris, or Shamir, Netanya staged not one, but two political comebacks. That is not a chance given to many politicians. So the bottom line is, how will he now use this opportunity? Will he run roughshod over the country's judiciary? Will he trample democratic values? And will he sow divisions? Or will he use it to advance and strengthen the Jewish state economically, diplomatically, and militarily, as he has done often in the past? He made his speech after his victory. His speech was very low-key and moderate. He said nothing about his trials or the courts. He pledged to be the prime minister of the whole country. He promised to act carefully and not embark on adventures. 
he he cares about his legacy, and he is well aware of the third chance he's been given, and sounded like someone intent on not squandering the chance he's been given. He's been given, and he sounded well aware of the challenges posed by a far right wing party likely to be central axis in his government. So it's interesting times. I want to speak uh, about a subject which you very rarely hear about, and uh, essentially you, you never hear about it when I think about it. Um, my, I have a friend by the name of David Bedim. He runs an organization called the Center for Near East Policy Research. The offices are here in Jerusalem. Now, David has been doing a tremendous amount of research on what's happening within the Palestinian Authority and its relationship to some of the organizations and people here in Israel. Israeli corporations have a de facto monopoly on the provision of supplies to Gaza and other Palestinian Authority areas. The ability of these corporations to sustain their exclusive control of what really is a multi-billion dollar market is wholly dependent on something known as COGAT, C-O-G-A-T, which stands for the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories. They make the decisions. This is an Israeli organization. Now, over the past several weeks, Kogat has raised an alarm that humanitarian aid from UNRWA, the UN, is not reaching the Palestinian population. Now, Noting that this alarm is inconsistent with the fact that a, a thousand trucks every day carry Israeli products into Gaza, so Bedin's organization, the nearest policy research center, contacted 44 donor nations with the exception of, of a nominal reduction in American aid Every donor nation, every donor nation responded emphatically that the UN and hence Gaza is receiving 100% of its customary donations, an amount that is calculated to be like $1.2 billion every year. Now, this ongoing funding includes $13.5 million transfer on behalf of the Bank of Israel each month in cash by officials of the coordinator of government activities at the border with Gaza and is put into the hands of UN, UNRWA Workers Union, which is under the control of Hamas. Once the Israeli goods have been offloaded from Israeli trucks, witnesses have observed cash payments being made to officials of the coordinator of government activities in the territories. So why is Kogat, 
which is getting cash payments, raising an alarm. One possibility is that the current storm puts the Israeli monopoly at risk. Another is the opportunistic view that this is a good time to expand the lucrative export trade. The best estimate of the Center for Near East Policy is that about 150, 150 former officials of COA, of COGA, the coordinator, are senior executives at companies that export goods to Gaza into the Palestinian Authority areas. Now, this tradition of former Kogat officials, remember, this is a government organization, Israeli government, coordinator of government activities in the territories. The tradition of former officials of this Israeli organization joining commercial enterprise for the sole purpose of profiting from export to Gaza and the Palestinian Authority began as far back as 2005. With the expulsion of the Gush Katif communities and the handover of their assets to Hamas via the World Bank, Gaza became a cash cow for Israeli entrepreneurs. In other words, the, the Hamas in Gaza got a lot of money and Israeli entrepreneurs are ready to take advantage of this fact. The, uh, at that time, an Israeli general named Avel Giladi was the Kogat official in charge of the expulsions. He was placed in charge of Palestinian business development through something called the Portman Trust. In other words, the Jews were kicked out of, of the Gaza area in 2005, and this Israeli general, an official in charge of the expulsions, was placed in charge of Palestinian de de business development. Now, it was at this point that former Kogat officials responsible preventing Israeli products paid for in cash by Gazans began abandoning his service to Gogot in order to assume profitable roles as exporters to Gaza. In other words, they left their government position, essentially became private persons who were vetting Israeli products that were being sent into Gaza. Now at that time, we're talking back around 2005, an investigation was carried out by David Bedin's organization and exposed arraignments by which the Israeli army, the Palestinian Authority, the United States, and UNRWA, UN, cooperated to hand the Gaza economy over to Hamas. So today, for Israel's financial stakeholders, preservation of a status quo, status quo in which Israeli corporations maintain a de facto monopoly on the provision of supplies to the Palestinian Authority is a top priority. 
The advantages of preserving this monopoly also give those corporations good reason to try to influence military decision-making. Now, the very idea that the Israeli army, the IDF, would consider commercial interest in its military planning at first seems quite preposterous. However, mounting practical and circumstantial evidence is telling precisely that story. It begins with what we already know with certainty that the UN, UNRWA, has historically promoted Israeli commercial interests by maintaining a huge labor force, these are Arabs, willing to work below minimum wage while living in housing, enjoying education, and using water and electricity paid for by the United Nations. To this very day, the Palestinian Authority areas remain what you may call a captive consumer economy dependent on Israeli products. So, the synergy created by Israel's official hands-off policy and the clear interest that the UN, the PLO, and donor nations have in perpetuating the status quo create a perfect economic storm in which Israeli conglomerates operate. Through their complicity in perpetuating this status quo, the UN, the PLO, donor nations have provided Israeli commercial interests with a smokescreen behind which they obscure their exploitation of what is essentially a captive commuter consumer market in Gaza. Now, it's understandable why Israeli businesses want to sustain this status quo. But in 1987, there were 300,000 Palestinians working for, uh, for the um, UNRWA, for the UN, in Israel. That was nearly 7% of the entire population of the country. The Intifada led to a withdrawal of that workforce, but by then the attitude of the Israeli business community was fixed. The, cap the captive UN market was a golden goose for Israeli products delivered to a suffering population in Gaza by ostensibly helping hands. Now, the, the initial finding of David Bedin's organization is that financial windfalls, greed, and the appeal of monopoly has brought about a situation where former officers in the Israeli army may be using their influence to sustain a status quo that not only harms Israel's natural in in national interests, but which impacts on the Israeli army tactical and strategic decisions in Gaza. It is not a remote possibility that this situation has both resulted in the loss of Israeli soldiers and exposes civilians to increased danger. This is an extremely serious situation that is 
not known about sufficiently. The ensuing situation has been one in which massive amounts of pilfered cash from the UN and other humanitarian agencies has wound up in the hands of Hamas for the sole purpose of supporting terrorist activities. Huge sums of this cash are earmarked by Hamas for purchasing Israeli products. They have uh, the, the David Bedin's organization, in their research, have been able to confirm that in the case of each of the three Israeli army incursions to Gaza between 2000 and 2014 that were on the verge of decisively crushing Hamas were eased as a result of demands by the Israeli business community that their products be allowed to get through into Gaza. And this has been confirmed. They put out, they published findings to date which have included the disturbing revelation that a high-ranking Kogat official set up a company in charge of cement distribution in Gaza, for example. And this arrangement, the UN in Gaza was given responsibility for ensuring this cement would not reach Hamas terrorists. If the unsavory absurdity of this arrangement requires further verification, one need only look at the number of terrorist tunnels that to continue to be discovered and destroyed, and the amount of cement that's being imported to replace these tunnels. So this is a supplier's dream scenario. Now, that this scenario is something other than building materials that simply slipped through the cracks and ended up helping to build tunnels is borne out by the fact that there are no restrictions whatsoever on Israeli export to Gaza. There is no restriction on goods being brought into Israel from Gaza. Now, it is entirely possible that Gaza terrorist organizations are carrying out trade with Israeli citizens. There's no list of authorized merchants, since generally speaking, there's no restriction on those wishing to trade with Gaza. Now, sampling done by Bedin's organization has confirmed that these exports are dominated by firms owned by former senior Israeli officers. In the face of compelling circumstantial evidence, uh, there's an urgent need to answer one remaining question with certainty, and that is, does the Israeli army regulate its actions to benefit commercial interests of its former officers? So, the, the, this is being investigated by examining Israeli profit-making corporations that engage in so-called humanitarian aid to the Palestinian Authority by auditing revenue and profits of these businesses 
and identifying end user products exported from Israel to the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. So David Bedin's organization will include trilingual investigators who speak Hebrew, English, and Arabic with backgrounds in economics and security analysis to find out exactly what is happening. Now, they're going to have a lot of budget to do that, and uh, I don't want to go into the exact amount. So we're talking about a lot of money. The, um, with the, the exception of high-tech, of high-tech, the business being are examined by David Bedin's organization operate with the oversight of the Israeli army and Kogai. The rules are that high-tech bypasses government approvals and employs hundreds of computer engineers to work via the internet with Israeli companies, allowing the Palestinian Authority and Hamas engineers access to UN-affiliated organizations such as the UN place requests for tenders via UN procurement organization, which in turn contacts every vendor in order to can carry out transaction, uh, transactions. So there is former Israeli army officers are doing a big business with the terrorists in Gaza. So they're making a lot of money and there's also the the fact that a lot of the cement, for example, is used to support tunnels being dug into Israel for terrorists. When I first read an initial report put out by the Center for Near East Policy Research, that is my friend David Bedin's organization, I was really shocked that there are companies in Israel and a lot of former officers in the Israeli army who are making a lot of money uh, out of dealing with Gaza, with Gaza. And the, as I said before, the tradition of former officials of the coordinator of government activities in the territories joining commercial enterprises for the sole purpose of profiting from exports to Gaza, it began, as I said, in 2005. We're talking uh, uh, more than, uh, well, we're talking already 17 years, right? It's something that's way under the headlines. Most people don't know about it. I was surprised, and I might I might say I was actually shocked when I read an initial report by the Center for Near Risk Policy Research that what is going on is extremely disturbing, by the way, at least to me, and it should be for to others, that a lot of former Israeli uh, high um, military men are now in private companies who are making a lot of money out of dealing with imports and exports from Gaza, from the territory that is governed by Hamas, a terrorist organization. This is something which is way under the headlines. 
more should be known about it. And I think that um, any listeners who are interested should uh, contact the Center for Near East Policy Research because this is a subject which must be become better known. It, it, as I said before, it shocked me, and I think more people should know about it. The Dean's organization can be reached on an electronic uh, mail at israelnewsinvestigations at gmail.com. And I think people should take an interest in this. It's really a scandalous thing. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. One minute of Torah. In this week's Torah portion, Vayera, God appeared to Abraham who was sitting at the entrance of his tent waiting for guests. This is not surprising, as Abraham was the epitome of kindness. What is surprising is Abraham's response to God when he informs him that he's going to annihilate the utterly wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Kind-hearted Abraham speaks harshly to God. Will you even destroy the righteous with the wicked? It is unfitting for you to do such an act. Will the judge of the entire earth not perform justice? Whoa! What happened to kind and polite Abraham who accepts the word of God? What happened was that he was faced with an opportunity to save lives. And when the life of our fellow is at risk, we do anything and everything to save him even going completely against our character. We are all Abraham's children. We all inherited his DNA of kindness and of the ability to transcend our natural selves. If we are ever made aware of a situation where the physical or spiritual life of our fellow is in danger, we know that we can and must stand up and try our best to save him. With your Ayn of Torah, this is Chava Zekovich. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. I want to say a few words about uh, Israel's relationship with the United United Nations. But perhaps I should uh, put it differently. The United Nations' relationship with Israel. Every number of years, the people at the UN undertake an initiative whose intention is really to undermine the state of Israel, and I mean the very legitimacy of the state of Israel. Back in 1975, UN passed a resolution called Zionism is Racism, and uh, our ambassador at the UN at that time was Chaim Herzog, eventually became president, and he stood in the rostrum of the UN at that time took out the res- copy of the resolution, tore it up in front of everybody. So that was really an act saying what our attitude is toward their resolution. Now, trying to undermine Israel's legitimacy has remained a theme in the UN. It's interesting, the UN never tr- tried to undermine the legitimacy of her sovereign state not the United States or France or any country. Now, what happened recently is the United Nations established what they called a fact-finding mission on the Gaza conflict. 
and they put a guy named Richard Holt Goldstein at the head of it. He was a, uh, a judge from South Africa, and he put out a report called the Goldstone Report in 2009, and it outrageously presented findings, including, of all things, an assertion that the Israeli army had deliberately killed Palestinian civilians. Now, what happened later was that this report was put out in the name of the UN. A short time later, Goldstone himself reputed it, reputed it, reputed it, I'm sorry, repudiated his own report in an op-ed in the Washington Post. But there's no no doubt that the reputation of our army was tarnished by these terrible lies that were spread by the UN. Now, the latest UN outrage with regard to Israel has been the UN, UN Independent International Commission of Inquiry, which is known as the COI by its, by its initials, it was established by the UN Human Rights Council in May a year ago. What stood out in its report now, a year later, was the decision of the Human Rights Council to make the commission permanent but not limit its work to a defined period of time. Now we have a, a UN-based council keeping an eye on Israel. And the resolution called on this new commission to investigate all underlying root causes of recurrent tensions, instability, and protraction of conflict. So essentially what they did was create a body uh, who uh, the, would perpetually make allegations against Israel. This resolution had no time limits and no definition of what the root causes are. Now, this, this uh, resolution did not say a word about the ter terrorist groups like Hamas that are operating against Israel. It only dealt with Israel, which appeared 277 times in the report itself. Now the question is, what did the UN with this new commission hope to achieve? One of its commissioners, an Australian named Chris Sidat, or Sidati, was explicit. He allowed the United Nations to quote him, suggesting that states must move from the report that they issued to the actual referral to the International Court of Justice in the Hague. In short, what he called for was legal, this Australian called for legal proceedings against Israel. They went on to write, and I quote, Israel was largely to blame for the continuation of its conflict with the Palestinians. The the, uh, interesting enough, the spokesman for the American State Department named Ned Price concluded that the report was unfairly singling out Israel, which was kind of obvious. 
One of the arguments that the report makes is that the Israeli presence in Judea and Samaria is now unlawful under international law due to its permanence. In other words, the report is saying that since 1967, the UN could not use that language, but now the UN feels it, it has the liberty to make some kind of legal argument about the fact that Israel is in that area. Keep in mind, by the way, and I'm sure the listeners know, Israel took that uh, over that area, Judea and Samaria, what they call the West Bank. Israel took it over in defense of war. Um, and, and I think just about every legal system recognizes that in a defensive war, you take over to, over territory, territory can become yours. So what has changed in the UN now that makes it more anti-Israel than it was before? So the uh, has already been noted that while the issue of, of uh, this uh, COI, this uh, UN organization, the Independent International Commission of Inquiry, uh, it's, um, the international response, the annexation of four regions in Ukraine by Russia just a month ago. However, there's no basis for comparing the two territorial disputes. It must always be recalled that Israel took over Judea and Samaria in a war of defense back in June 1967, the Six-Day War. Israel's neighbors, including Jordan, had massed their armies along its borders during the month of May 1967. They were threatening to overrun Israel. Now, Jordan incidentally had annexed Judea and Samaria back in 1950, made it part of Jordan, which is un- illegal to begin with. The, uh, but no one recognized that action with the exception of Britain and Pakistan. Even the other UN countries didn't recognize the Jordan annexation of Judea and Samaria. Now, Russia's current operations in Ukraine were not in self-defense, but rather it was a war of aggression. We all know that. They invaded, um, they made it, they invaded Ukraine. And the uh, UN is not saying anything about the, uh, the, uh, the uh, annexation of regions in Ukraine by Russia. Indeed, the there is a great British authority on international law with a very strange name. name. It's, uh, it's a very Hebrew name, or at least his first name. His name is Elihu Latterpach. Uh, he's drawn the distinction between unlawful territorial change by an aggressor and lawful territorial change in response to an aggressor. This is a very, very important distinction. In short, comparison between Israel back in 1967 and Russia today are simply baseless. 
One is a unlawful territorial change by an aggressor, which is what happened now. Russia took over parts of Ukraine. And lawful territorial change in response to an aggressor, which is what Israel had done back in 1967. And by the way, that area that Israel took over in 1967, that we call Judea and Samaria, the very annexation of land to Jordan in 1950 was not recognized. So in a sense, it could be said that Israel in 1967 took over an area that belonged to nobody. So what is the explanation, explanation for what the United Nations is doing in singling out of Israel? So it is a kind of diplomatic invective. It's a nasty misuse of international law to nasty misuse of international practice by taking the struggle of the UN against Israel to a new level. In other words, the UN, which actually created Israel, is now taking steps against Israel. So what can Israel do given the predicament at the UN? There's no question that the singling out of Israel by the UN requires some kind of response. I don't know what Israel's going to do, but obviously a response is required. I want to say a couple of words about the Israeli election which took place uh, last week, and it's going to take a while to uh, set up a coalition government. But I want to say something about the election itself. The uh, Israel had five elections in like two and a half years. Uh, you can uh, debate the political choices made by the voters. A lot of people don't like the parties that got majority votes and that allow uh, Netanyahu to put together a government. Some of the articles in the papers, some of the comments on the radio are really nasty. I wouldn't even want to... Uh, I wouldn't want to quote them at all. The uh, What happened was that the percentage of citizens voting was more than 70%. That's unbelievable. You know, in the United States, I think they generally get less than 50%, something like 43%. Um, it's especially impressive, given the fact that this was the fifth election in three years, and people could have said, why go anymore? You know, but they didn't. They actually went and they voted. The uh, interesting, an organization called uh, Tier 2 uh, was motivated because the fear of a lower turnout, this in Tier 2 organization conducted an unusual and likely unprecedented door-to-door research project last summer, and essentially they asked thousands of citizens, not in the center of the country, like in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, but in the peripheral areas, which historically have very low turnout rates. They went and asked whether uh, they they, they, uh, they uh, would vote 
and uh, or, or and this upcoming election, which we just had, and if they weren't going to vote, why not? The first, the responses. This was done last summer. Focused mostly on this, on the sense that my vote does not matter, will not change anything. Now the pushback against this was widespread. And the results speak for themselves. Israelis were heroic in this election for their civility and for showing up. And they showed up to send a very powerful message to themselves and to the democratic world. The message was clear and simple. We embrace Zionism, we embrace tradition, and we are not afraid to assert our individuality as a nation. And we're not interested in the, the progressivism and both Zionism or any other ism that would lead us away from the focus of Israel as a Jewish state and as a democratic state. Another message, a very serious one, that it's time to take care of business here. There are issues that have been ignored or minimized and they must be tackled. The voters essentially reiterated the love of Zionism. They're attached to the Jewish people in our land and their great enthusiasm for the ongoing saga of Israel that lives apart and, and yet thereby serves as a light unto other nations. Uh, it's interesting that an election is coming up in the United States uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm recording this program Saturday night, but by the time my program is aired, there will have been an election in the United States. And the percentage of Americans who come out and vote will be a response of displacement and alienation. The American electorate is more divided and much more frustrated than the Israeli electorate. There's been a significant departure from the values of American Americanism since I was a kid. The, there's a lack of unity that used to exist in the United States. And there seems to be a fear that no matter what you do, nothing can be done that the, the society is heading in the wrong direction and that a change in the right direction is not in sight. So here's where the Israeli example can be helpful. Above all, our election was about self-empowerment and the decision to assert ourselves as participatory citizens in a sovereign state. <coughs> Ironically, the message in Israel was captured back in 2008 by a slogan used by Barack Obama, which was, yes, we can. Sadly, that's not the mood of much of America today, but it is a mood that can be brought back. Israel's election showed America and other countries that will choose to study it that the effect of the citizenry is live and capable of moving things. How important and necessary is this message to other countries right now where the uh, 
authoritarianism and regimes around the world world are coming up. Uh, what about identity politics and all these uh, crazy things that are essentially attacking democracy? People worry not what they can, what John, ben, John Kennedy once said. Don't ask what the government can do for you. Ask what you can do for the government. And that's that uh, feeling has pretty much vanished in the United States. At the end of the day, what what is this election was empowerment. It's the uh, it's the same test that's on the ballot in the United States. The ability of the West to maintain its vitality and project its values must ultimately be a bottom-up, grassroots expression of the will of the people. Israel has shown in its election, in five elections in three, three years, Israel has shown the West that its citizens were more than capable of expressing themselves clearly and unambiguously. Without going into the details of the results, this is a message, by the way, that needs to be sent to the United States, and by extension, all nations that see themselves as democratic expressions of the will of the people. Israel has shown that. When seven, more than 70% of people come out to vote, you're making a statement about the will of the people, and that's very important. By the way, I think that the real problem in Israel, I shouldn't say the real problem, one of the worst problems in Israel is the fact you have to vote for a party list. You can't choose an individual. You have no representation of yourself. You don't have a congressman that you can go to. You don't have a congressman who has an office in your area and you can go to him with your needs. And I've done that when I was a citizen in America. In Israel, the parties present you with a list of non-entities, mostly, and you have nobody to turn to. They don't really represent the citizenry, but that's another story. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from Leak City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. 
Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Carr from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio.